coming up on Life is a Festival. In order for restorative justice to be successful, there's a lot of systemic work that has to be done. So I just want to say that. But in terms of what it is and how to apply it is, I would say if we just think about it like when sort of a harm happens in our community, whether it's small or medium, large is a little more complicated, that it's seeing it as a responsibility of the community to kind of address the harm, work with the harm, heal the harm, and really tending to both the person that did the harm in terms of why they did it, what they need, also what does it look like to be accountable, and obviously to the victim and the survivor of what happened to them. And so it's almost like Something happens and everybody kind of rushes and it's very fast motion. Let's call the police and let's take that person away. Now they're in prison. You know, it's just like this very quick, this victim has just gone home and is hurt. And it's very disjointed and it's very quick. And it's almost like, what if we just like slow mode that, slow it all down? Something happens. My name is Eamon Armstrong and this is Life is a Festival. This podcast is a celebration of thinkers and leaders who live their lives with the open-hearted, experimental joy of a festival. Each week, we converse in complete openness, in an ongoing quest to find those boundaries in our being and melt them into lofty horizons. Life is a festival, only to the wise. Well, my fellow travelers, I hope that this holiday season has been joyful and connected, or if you're like me and this time of year can be a little challenging, I hope that you are able to make it through the slower times with support and love and that this bright new year brings hope and inspiration for you. Well, today on the show, my friends, this is a big one and it might feel like a bit of a departure from the typical content matter of life as a festival. But I think as you listen, you'll understand the way that exploring our deepest shadows are so important for our personal growth and blossoming. Because if there's one place that is the complete opposite of a festival with all its expansive, joyful, experimental connection, it's a prison. And the US prison system is atrocious. However, there are alternatives and ways to think about reform. On the show today, I'm speaking to Sonia Shah, who is an absolute specialist in restorative justice and really a joy to speak with. On the program, we first begin with an invitation to a meaningful life, which really sets the philosophical foundation for the conversation. And we talk about cultivating joy in service and not burning out in sort of sacrificial activism. And Sonia is just such a great model for this. Then we dive right into the U.S. prison system. And it's a hard thing to talk about because it's really such an atrocious overreach of the state to incarcerate so many people. And it doesn't solve harm. It doesn't help victims. It doesn't actually serve our communities. We discuss a bit about prison reform and ways that people can think about that and ways that we can understand our privilege in relation to it. And then we move into this idea of restorative justice, which is not always right in every situation. In fact, in many situations, it's difficult to apply, but it is a beautiful model for reconciling harm within communities. 
In addition to discussing restorative justice conceptually, I actually share on the show today a community accountability process that I was in a supportive role in a few years ago. The podcast closes with a discussion of masculinity, patriarchy, and gender violence, and how we can create space for healing within our communities and by sitting with our own triggers and our own difficult sensations. So Sonia Shaw is an associate professor at California Institute of Integral Studies, and she's been teaching and facilitating restorative justice circles for over 15 years. She's trained hundreds of facilitators in trauma healing and helped communities design their own group healing processes. Sonia initiated the Ahimsa Collective in 2016, which facilitates circles for survivors of sexual harm and people who have committed sexual harm within the prison system and beyond. She is a Buddhist, a first-generation immigrant from the northwestern part of India, and a shining example of joyful service. And now, here is Sonia Shah. Well, Sonia, before we start, or before we sort of officially start, I just wanted to take a moment for us both to just give a lot of love and maybe in a sense bring into the room Bell Hooks, who passed away today. I did not know that. Wow. Thank you for telling me the, that. I, <laughs> I would have yeah. perhaps told you a little more gently no, had I did not no, presume no. that you were aware. So Bell Hooks did pass away today. Yeah, that's really sad. She's yeah. an amazing human. Do you know how she passed away? I don't. Oh. I have not. Interesting. I, yeah, it came across my field just mm-hmm. as I was arriving. And I'm not sure why I assumed no, that it moved through the zeitgeist so quickly. In yeah, my life for sure. And I mean, I've read pretty much everything she's written and I often have students read at least three or four of her chapters or part books and stuff like that. So that's just what a huge, what a giant. You know, what a, yeah, what a giant. What a mighty, yeah, what a giant, mighty, mighty human. Mighty human. I, I'm very interested in masculinity. And I think that there's a lot around masculinity and the way that people are socialized to be men that has a lot to do with the way that harm happens. And there's a quote from Bell Hooks that to me cuts to the core of what it means to be a man in the context of patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to read it because I've been thinking about her and about this conversation. She writes, The first act of violence that patriarchy demands of males is not violence towards women. Instead, patriarchy demands of all males that they engage in acts of psychic self-mutilation, that they kill off the emotional part of themselves. If an individual is not successful in emotionally crippling himself, he can count on patriarchal men to enact rituals of power that will assault his self-esteem. I know that quote really well. Yeah. Yeah. Really appreciate you sharing that. And... To me, that resonates a lot with some of what I've heard you speak about in terms of restorative justice, most especially the idea that one of the starting places with an individual who has done harm is to be with them in their history of being harmed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in masculinity, there's a lot of harm that is passed on for all of us, generational trauma. There's harm that's passed on, but specifically I feel like in the expression of what it means to be a man, this quote is so resonant with, I think, so many experiences that people have. So I just, in honor of Bell Hooks and just by way of saying hello, just wanted to bring that flavor to the table today. Yeah, I really appreciate that kind of way to 
start or frame or just even enter into a deeper conversation. Um, I think I'm still sitting with the fact that Bell Hooks is gone, so it's going to take you a moment. But I, when you read that quote, I was thinking about maybe four or five years ago, putting together a bunch of material, going inside a prison in the Central Valley here in California, working mainly with men who had committed sexual harm. And others had done other other types of harms, but and, and patriarchy was always... It's like always at the center, right? It's not like it's separated from anything. And I just remember going through her book and looking for for like really juicy bits of bell hooks to bring in because she sparks so much. And that was the first one I saw. That was the first quote I saw. And I was stuck on it. It was like sort of the the center of one of the pages of a piece of writing or curriculum or process that I had brought in. And so I really appreciate that. Um, and I think to speak to why, you know, just to, to speak to why is, it's, I think it's one of the hardest things for like broader dominant culture to understand because we are so stuck in like very black and white thinking and punitive thinking and kind of normalized culture in a certain way that people who have done harm, even sexual harm, it comes from somewhere. It's not just like out of the blue, somebody wakes up and is like, hi, I think I'm going to hurt somebody today. You know, it really has a history. It has a trajectory. It has life. It has a lineage. It has trauma. It has racism. It has historical stuff in it. And that it's kind of all of our jobs, you know, to help that person, to just walk with that person as they unpack what those things are so that they heal and so that they can truly be accountable. And I think I have to always say this right after I say that because because victims and survivors and people who've been hurt have never gotten their real due of being seen and heard, and, and I'm not talking about in court, I mean just really, really understood for their pain and their loss, it's really, really difficult for folks to feel that compassion for people who've done harm. You know, it's really, really hard. And so in the same vein, we have to have the utmost care and love and compassion for survivors, for people who've been hurt and not see them as canceling each other out, you know. So I just, I guess that's what it, it sort of brings me to. And I've said this many times, but I really believe it and and it's something, I don't know, it's kind of related to my own journey that like my healing wasn't dependent on anyone else's suffering. And I don't think that anyone's healing has to be dependent on someone else suffering. And that's really, really a hard piece for us to pull apart. Yeah, and in fact, when we talk about healing within families and ancestral healing, often the healing is really galvanized through others' healing rather than than suffering and punishment. And I think that that happens in the restorative justice model as well, is that when the community is feeling the healing together, when the person who has done the harm is experiencing accountability and healing through accountability, which kind of liberates some of that shame that is part of that experience for them. And then the person who has been harmed is fully witnessed and held in community. And the community itself is grieving that there's an amplifying experience that happens, whereas in the punitive justice model where the victim is not present except as a tool of the of the prosecutor, 
And it's all about handing down this punishment to the person who has done a harmful act and has now become a bad person. Um, yeah, I've been, exactly. I've been, I've been studying That's your perfect. work before, yeah, <laughs> before no, we started. Sounds so great. But th- these are the two models. Yeah. Um, and so today on Life is a Festival, we're going to talk about restorative justice in prisons and why all of this should matter to the type of people who go to Burning Man and are excited about psychedelics and are happily, but perhaps sometimes in a removed sense, progressive. Mm-hmm. All of this will be our playground today in our conversation. So with this preamble, Sonia, welcome to Life is a Festival. Thanks. It's an honor to speak with you today. I am delighted by the serendipitous experiences that brought us together to have this conversation. And more than anything, I'm just thrilled to get to learn from you in these moments we'll be sharing together. And for the folks listening who might be like, oh, I I don't really want to listen to a podcast about prisons. Mm -hmm. Well, (laughs) I would say that this is actually going to be far more important for many of the listeners of this show Mm -hmm. to listen to than another podcast about how great ayahuasca is, for example. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So not that it's not great. So Sonia, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm happy to be here with you. So when we first had our introductory conversation, the first question was, okay, the podcast is Life is a Festival. The idea of this expansive, open-hearted way of being that you have in in the context of whether it's a music festival or a cultural festival or this open-hearted expression. Why would we then be talking about prisons and harm and, and and these models of justice that perpetuate more harm? And for me, a prison is the opposite of a festival. And we have a responsibility to look at all of these different pieces, both within ourselves and within society. And when we spoke about that, I felt our first connection in a conversation was your view of the whole human and the whole life experience. And I really resonate with that. And I'd love for us to start today with you sharing a little bit about how this idea of life being a festival and restorative justice are so extraordinarily interlinked and must be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think that the totality of our human experiences don't deny one thing or the other. If we have extreme joy and ecstasy, we also experience extreme loneliness and pain. If we've experienced incredible forgiveness and reconciliation, we've probably also been really deeply hurt, you know, and have suffered. And so, what an incredible thing to think about life as a festival. But it doesn't have to be without a real acknowledgement of the human experience, right? The totality of that experience and how it all fits together. So that I guess the way, the best way that I would would put it or or have my way in is really about what does it mean to live a meaningful life? What does that mean? What does meaningfulness mean? What does it mean to love what you're doing, to wake up in the morning and just feel joy? And some people might feel that festival joy. Uh, walking into a prison. And some people might feel it going to Burning Man and some people might feel it being with their kids. Whatever it is, it's all there, you know, and it, it depends on our or, our own orientation. I don't know why this this sort of pops out to me, but I'm a, I'm a fan of, I don't know, I'm a fan of just sort of people who try to make sense of life and, and meaningfulness and what does it mean to live a meaningful life. And I remember, you know, years and years ago reading Viktor Frankl, and he said, everyone knows who he is. He went through Holocaust, came up with a therapy, 
and at the end of his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he says, you know, there are three things that create a meaningful life, relationships, meaningful relationships, meaningful work, and making meaning out of suffering. And I think this piece about suffering as it relates to prison, as it relates to harm, as it relates to restorative justice is really about that. It's really about like, how do I make meaning out of things that are hard? And I feel like what you do is bring life or meaningfulness to things that are, are exciting. And so they're not, they're not different, you know, they're just different ways in. And I guess that, that to me is really a way to kind of look at the totality of our conversation. Well, and approaching the idea of life as a festival on my side, I tend to look at this kind of trajectory of celebrate or party, heal and serve. So when you are in this festival environment, life is so expansive. And then you go back to your regular life and you feel there's a contraction. Why is that? Okay, there's something there to be healed. Why can't I live in this open-hearted, connected way if I'm not in this vehicle or incubative environment that's a festival? And then there's a process of healing. And I'm, I'm a big proponent of psychedelic medicine and the experience of psychedelic medicine as revealing to us the ways that we are stuck and contracted. And then that personal healing only goes so far because it can be a little myopic and you can get stuck in the cycle of personal healing. And then the next step is this idea of service and community. Living life like a festival involves experiencing this healing, experiencing this service. And all the while experiencing celebration and being able to come back to the well of a festival-like experience or other kinds of peak experiences to remind oneself that life is this expansive thing. And when I think about activism and when I think about the work that you do, I feel like there, there can be a version of that that's joyless. There can be a version of that that is so self-sacrificing because the enormity of the world's grief can feel so total. Then on the other side of that, there's putting your head in the sand and resting in your own privilege and not looking at anything. And I think bringing those two spaces together of the festival and the joy and the leaning towards that expansive experience, but with the accountability to community broadly without getting burnt out, like that seems to be the place to get to. And you strike me as someone who is very full of joy in the work that you do. And you do a lot of work. You said that for some people it can be joyful to walk into a prison. How do you cultivate that joy in the work that you do? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would say that one thing that's huge that I've noticed, and I think this has been my 20 years now experience of doing this kind of work, is and just being in the world, being in the West, there's so many people who feel really isolated. There's such a, a feeling of a lack of belonging and that's probably true to folks who go to Burning Man, right? Any workshop, any anything I've ever seen anybody do that's like bringing community get together and building something, there's a piece of that that's like people are looking for some belonging, right? And coming out of isolation. And I think that's similar to the work we do. So, so much of what we do is being done with groups of people in circle, whether it's in a prison, whether it's in our office, we are groups and groups of people in community together doing healing work together. So when you walk into a room, it's not this kind of sad space of just like, oh, it's me and my feelings and I have to confront myself or I'm facilitating something and I have no support. It's not like that at all. You know, it's really 
it's really filled with belonging. It's really filled with other people that really love healing, you know, really love transformation, really love being in it and know that they get a lot out of it. You know, absolutely. When you're the witness, when you're the standby, you're the person walking by someone's side, there's so much vicarious, beautiful healing that happens just to be in the witness space. It's a privilege. It's a gift. You know, someone's willing to share the worst thing that ever happened to them, the best thing that ever happened to them, the hardest thing that they need to say for the day. Someone who's like excavating some little piece of shame for the first time and you get to sit there and listen to that and just be with that person. How much does it help us, me, heal? How much does it help me unlock my little corners of shame that I've been afraid to talk about? And then I'm doing it with this person and then there's like a co-facilitator and there's like a community member and we're all experiencing this thing together and it's a really powerful alchemizing transformative experience and so I think I would say that's sort of how we bring it into our work even in the most extreme situations right the when the worst story you could hear of of harm it's painful and it's hard and then it's also really real. It's people's lives. And so it's not running away from that piece that's really real and being in it together, like in community to hold it is is really, I think, why people choose to do sort of go into prisons and also find joy in just being and walking with others. So you said that you've been working in this space for about 20 years. When you first approached this work, did you have a sense that there was an aspect of belonging and community that was in it that was attractive to you? Or were there other reasons that you first got into the work of restorative justice or perhaps a combination? Yeah, no, that's a great question. It's probably more like 15 years if I'm being like trying to track the number of years properly. I had varying experiences of, so I feel like a question that I've used often in my own trainings and talking to people is, is to really understand as a person who does this work, quote unquote, right? As a quote unquote facilitator, like, why am I here? Like, why am I really here? Not like, oh, I want to help others. That's, that's not it. So if there's a, why am I here? Why am I really here? Maybe there's also a, why am I really, really here? And then what's the, what's the third really? Why am I really, really, really here? And then what's the fourth really? We have a joke of what's the fourth really? What's the, why am I really, 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 really here? And I think that that question can be really layered and having asked it of myself keeps changing and growing and evolving on deeper levels. And so I would definitely say that I had an experience of belonging. You know, I definitely had an experience of feeling like I found people that think the way that I do, that get down the way that I do, that like to do this work. So there was that sense of camaraderie, um, that experience of belonging also, you know, if I'm being honest, actually came walking into a prison too, in a, in a culture um, of folks that were really interested in kind of healing and looking at their own lives and, and thinking about accountability. And so to walk into that also created that feeling of belonging. And then I also think that it just, on a, on a really deeper level of like the way I think the world should be, it really spoke to me, right? When we're talking about restorative justice or community-oriented justice practices that aren't about relying on the state system, that are really about looking at how we are with each other 
and that we're always going to hurt each other. We're always going to have conflict. We're going to do these things to each other. And so how do we figure out what to do about that within each other, I think was very attractive. And then I think these, these deeper kind of emotional, unconscious ways that we live out our lives when it comes to whether it's socialization and patriarchy, whether it's shame, how it sits in us, whether it's grief and how it sits in us, trauma and how it sits in us, different lived experiences, environments, how they live in us and how we enact them all the time. And that what we're doing in this work is just bringing those to the table and going in it and talking about it is where I want to be. It's what made me feel alive. I'm not much of a small talker. Like I can do small talk. I was listening to some really sweet I don't know if you know Susan Cain, she wrote a book about introverts, but there's this moment in one of, in the book that she talks about sort of how she goes to this conference for introverts. And I don't think I'm an introvert, but she describes this idea that introverts first need to go deep in order to then rise to the shallow, back to the shallow. So if the first levels of conversation can go to like level 100, then it's fine. We can just shoot the shit, you know, we can just bullshit and have fun and Without that, it's difficult for me to sort of land. And so that definitely brought me a lot of joy. Mm, I wonder, maybe I'm more of an introvert than I thought. I pretty much can't do the small talk. That's why I got a podcast. <laughs> so let's get into the unpleasantness of the reality of the prison system. I had a conversation with Chloe Cockburn, who introduced us, and she described it to me this way, which I thought was just such an incredible visual. Imagine that everyone is walking around the lip of a funnel, and the funnel is slippery, and it slides you into the absolute opposite way of being, a place that you're completely confined, your whole life is taken away from you. That's at the end of this funnel. And this funnel is very slippery. Many of us have sticky shoes, and we're walking around the lip of this funnel with our sticky shoes, and we have no concept that there's this really horrible place that we don't even look at. But some people don't have their sticky shoes, and they're constantly kind of slipping and trying to stay up, but they slip and they fall down. And of course, this funnel I'm referring to takes us to the US prison system. For sure. And what Chloe said is so many conversations are about giving people sticky shoes. But we should be having a conversation about getting rid of this horrific funnel. Mm -hmm. And I think just the visual of the sticky shoes on this slippery, deadly slope really helped me conceptualize what it means to, to not be afraid of slipping into that. Mm -hmm. Particularly as someone, so I'm a psychedelic drug user. And I'm openly that way. I think they provide a lot of healing. I'm afforded a certain privilege where I feel like I'm able to do that. And if something goes wrong in that experience, that I feel like I would generally be okay because I have a certain degree of privilege. Now, there are people who can't afford to get a parking ticket without sliding down that funnel. And there's an extraordinary asymmetry between my experience and theirs. And it's fundamentally, and it's, it is an absolute injustice, this so-called justice system. So I think it's really important for my listeners, for myself, that we look at the prison system and how it does not work and how unfair it is. And there's movies like 13, which are 13 or 13th? 13th. 13th. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's 13th. 
Could be 13th, the 13th, the 13th Amendment. Amendment. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, there's there's great things to watch. I think it's also helpful for this particular audience to think about someone that they don't know getting busted for drugs at a festival and being let out by security, or someone who has a mental health emergency that isn't cared for by professionals and leads them to a law enforcement intervention. And that someone who you might not know, who is celebrating in the same way as you with the same open heart, deserves the same experience of this openness that you get at a festival. But they're going down that funnel. And so before we get into restorative justice, which is so inspiring and gives us a really interesting alternative that we can cultivate in our communities, first I just want to take some time to talk about how atrocious it is to have this system of punishment and how those of us who have our sticky shoes can do a better job at not looking away and perhaps even getting involved in supporting in a certain way those of us who are sliding down this funnel. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great image. I think really captures the difference between the approach of giving others sticky shoes is this kind of ideology of looking at everything from a meritocracy, right? Like from a very individualized, like, you know, well, if we just do this thing and we give these out, then people will be fine. As opposed to really understanding like the deep, deep, deep systemic nature of prisons. And that it's not, Uh, a coincidence that we have so many of them. It's not like, oh, it just sort of happened. It is a very deliberate way of keeping certain people from having uh, a chance. You know, it's a very deliberate form of torture and slavery and punishment. And we can create so much rationalization and ideology around that, right? Around the idea of the quote-unquote criminal, around the idea of what's bad and what's good. And you said it yourself, right? Just the nature of understanding alternative substances, right? And how something like a psychedelics in one person's hand and in another person's hand will look totally different. And I think what's so hard about that is that People know that cognitively, like, oh, yeah, 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 I know I have privilege, you know, I know if I get stopped in a car, nothing will happen. And and they know it by watching shows and hearing experiences. But how do we bring that knowledge to our hearts? Like, how does it matter? Like, when does it start to matter? Why does it matter? What's the light bulb that goes off to someone, you know, that goes, oh, my God, I'm a part of the human community. I'm a part of this thing that's happening and it's not outside of me. Even if I don't know somebody who's directly incarcerated, it's not outside of me. This is none of this is outside of me. It's not outside of our history. And I don't really know what that button is. You know, I really don't. I'm so curious because I've seen different people at different points snap, change, and sort of really realize this is like also my responsibility. And I wonder, I wonder if it just has to do with like our disconnection in the West. I wonder if if it has to do with, you know, not having a better understanding of responsibility for each other, for accountability. I wonder if it has to do with um, how we crave community and what does it mean to take care of each other in community? I don't know what it is, but it's such a big, big deal. And I, 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 I need to say that my speaking about going into prison and experiencing some 
sense of transformation is not saying that prisons are good by any means. We're talking about sort of people who have against all odds slipped down the funnel, can't get out, but figure out how to find peace and joy in that place. And to be with folks that are in that is, you know, kind of like if you can do it, what does that say about what the rest of us can and cannot do? Like we can, we can do this. So absolutely. It's a horrendous thing. So that light bulb, let's get into that light bulb for a minute because a lot of the listeners of this podcast consider themselves in a process of healing and evolution, but it's a lot within kind of insular communities and a lot like expat communities going to these sort of exotic retreats or whatever to have these transformative experiences. And so there's people who are listening who within their communities are all about like let's raise the vibration and let's evolve together and let's let's become conscious of our shadows and let's do all of this work. And yet this horrendous system of of prisons is completely blank. It's completely out of our purview. And we think a lot about, oh, let's become a, let's do shadow work. Let's look at our own shadows. But the prison system is this glaring shadow of like our collective consciousness. Yeah. And we're not looking at that. I watched that documentary and I, and it was, it was around the time when George Floyd was murdered. And there was this, this moment of this energy. And then maybe it's something around the way late stage capitalism in America sort of points you towards certain things. Mm -hmm. But you kind of wake up a little bit and then you go to sleep. And I'm interested in this light bulb because when I started talking to Chloe about prison reform, and particularly for me that metaphor of the funnel, I was like, this needs to be in our awareness regularly in the same way that climate change or our own death needs to be in our awareness because I think there's a kind of hypocrisy to say that Mm -hmm. you are about healing and about community and about all these things when there's kind of a head in the sand experience about something that is as atrocious and torturous mm-hmm. as mass incarceration in the US. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you've said it all. I mean, I, I agree with you, right? And I, I wonder, I'm just thinking about the light bulbs. Are they slow and gradual? Do they come all of a sudden? What are, what are, what's the impetus, right, for the broader culture to go from sort of a little bit of like, oh yeah, it's there to, oh yeah, it's here inside of me, you know, and climate change is a great example of that, right? What made us more aware? What made it feel really real? I think, I mean, sadly, sometimes it's sort of the impact that we feel on our own lives. But I think there's also other ways, right? Like when George Floyd happened, when when all of it started to happen, there maybe there's a falling back asleep but for some people, but maybe there isn't for others. And I think there are these big events that catalyze folks to change. Even small, these meaningful relationships. You met Chloe and you started thinking about something differently. That's huge. So I, I just feel like it's a number of things that are small and big that make us come to a realization that this is sort of a part of our lives I'm thinking about like, when you think about Standing Rock, right? Before Standing Rock, people weren't as aware aware of this both like indigenous land and like big environmental catastrophe. Like we know it's always there. Like the land's always being stolen and this is always happening. But something about Standing Rock catalyzed folks. So 
I do think there's something about these mass events, you know, when something happens that brings things into consciousness in a different way that do maybe if there's like low hanging fruit, you know, like, oh yeah, no, this really is a part of my life, you know, kind of changes things. So. Okay. So maybe low hanging fruit is a way we can get from the light bulb to action. So I have a light bulb. I had a beautiful conversation with Chloe. I was lit up like, oh, I want to talk about this on the podcast. So now we're having this conversation. And so then the next question is, if I want to make this awareness part of my reality in a consistent basis, part of that is action around it, mm-hmm. right? And that, that allows me to be in better relationship to it. It keeps it in my awareness and allows me without the kind of, I'm good because I'm writing checks kind of thing, something that's more engaged, mm-hmm. something that's more real and connected. So for someone like me, and indeed for me, and considering the work that you do, and the work the Ahimsa Collective does, what would you suggest in terms of low-hanging fruit for people who are busy and trying to fill many different things in their lives? What is a way that we can get involved in prison reform? Is it about court watching? Is that an access point? Is it about volunteering for an organization like yours? Where would be an access point for someone like me or someone listening to this program to get involved in creating a bridge with the type of people who have had their lives completely overturned because of some small or even large mistake that they've made? Yeah, I mean, that's such a great question. I don't really know. I'm trying to put myself in your shoes of like things that I'm not as a part of. And then how would I start to access that? And I'll be quite honest with you. I think first I would just really ask myself why I I'm why it's really important. Or, Get all the reallys. Get a yeah, really and then a really of. really. I mean, I do and, think yeah. there's also, you know, there's a very parallel process of inner and outer work in my in my opinion. Like good work for me comes when we're like as aware of why we're doing it on the inside as to what we're gonna do on the outside, and that without that we can be patronizing. We can be you know, sort of othering, you know, it can Mm. still be coming in with this sort of like, I'm here to help, you know, I'm the one who knows, you're the one who doesn't know, you know, we can be reenacting and enacting a kind of patriarchy, you know, and a patronization that we don't want, right? So if we're thinking about being involved with things of the world in a decolonized kind of way, and by decolonized, I mean like, we're not trying to take, it's not transactional, we're trying to live in a way where we really see each other, where we support each other's agency, where we see the other human that is so different from us, then I probably want to know first, why am I even interacting with this person? Like, why? Why am I doing this? What is the, not even the whole, but what is the thing that's driving me? And so I would start there. I would start with like, well, why am I driven towards this? And What's the deeper reason that this feels really important to me? And it might be that because I believe life exists in this kind of a way and service means this and healing means that, it can be that. But to have some clarity and understanding first. And then I think, you know, what's really common for most communities is to go with this like walk beside me feeling of like, don't don't come here and like tell me what to do or tell me how to think and you've never been here before. But if you want to help, walk with me. 
learn, listen, and then we'll engage and we'll do something, right? So this idea of, I think it's a Lila Downs, it's an Aboriginal quote of like, don't walk ahead of me, don't walk behind me, walk beside me and be my friend, right? So what does that look like when you're coming into a community outside your own? So I think there's even that of like, what can I do based on what this community is saying they need, not based on what I think they need. So I would say that's so big, right? To even come with a different approach into a a space or into a, a work besides writing a check, right? And then I think like what I notice is that because many people come into this work, they come to trainings, they come to stuff, they're like, I don't have anything to do with prison, but I want to do something about it. I'm like, great. You know, and then they don't realize that it's like a big journey to understand the why for themselves. And then I think it's in the process of just starting to engage with people who do that work that you start to feel out like, oh, this is how I want to be involved. This resonates with me. This this is really important, but I don't think I'm in that. Like I could say... Policy is like the most important thing in the world, but I'm not a policy maker. I'm not a criminal justice reformer, you know, in terms of making policy. And I know that about myself, right? I like to be with human beings. And and someone who's doing big policy work might be like, I need to be in systemic places. You know, I can't be with, you know, humans on, on the daily. So I think it's like there's something about when we start engaging, whether it's like through an organization and volunteering or going to some event or hearing a podcast, following up, you know, in that way, I think it gets clear for that person sort of like, oh, this is how I want to engage and how I want to interact. And that's the best way to find yourself involved. Yeah, I I like an expression, serve in the way that feeds you most. Mm -hmm. You have to do both of the things that you've just described. First of all, you have to come with that humility to any kind of situation with or with someone else because that risk of if you're coming in to be a do-gooder, to coming in because you want to see yourself as a good person. There's so much that gets kind of perverted in that sanctimonious sort of progressive energy of like, I'm fixing, that's very tricky. And then secondly, you don't want to burn out or put yourself in a situation that doesn't resonate with you. I have a friend named Ned who hosts a poetry gathering called You're Going to Die. Have you ever heard of this? Mm -mm, Oh, it's great. He's been going for many years. And it's poetry, prose, and anything goes on the subject of death. And he was hosting it for many years in San Francisco. And it turned into kind of like an, a church-like experience of collective grief. And people would come to like have these powerful experiences of sharing what they'd written about on the subject of death. And he recently started bringing You're Going to Die poetry slam open mic to prisons. He's like, this is my thing that I do. I see that it creates this healing. So he found an appropriate way for him to do that and found it to be really rewarding. So I think that there's there's things like that. Exactly. Like bringing your art and of course making sure that you're building those relationships slowly and mm-hmm. moving at the speed of trust as yeah. you're entering into that. I think there are also too some ways that you can engage that are really low-hanging fruit. One of the things Chloe told me is court watching, which is, I think that's the right term for it, where apparently there's like research that shows that sentences are much lower when members of the public are present. And that you can actually, because it's all on Zoom now, she was saying that Fiona Apple apparently loves doing this and is like a huge proponent that's of great. this this work. But it's like, that's an entry point where you can just show up as a member of the public viewing court proceedings and that by your presence there, it apparently makes it a bit less bureaucratic and a little bit more personal mm-hmm. and 
Yeah. So, and and then who you vote for in elections, and Absolutely. and doing some research around who's most important to vote for in terms of this. Is it about whether you're voting for judges, or I guess it's all up the ballot, depending on who yeah, you I think vote it's for. all up the ballot. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you could look at sort of everybody's record or platforms and see where they land on things for sure. And I think that's the thing is once you start engaging in one conversation with somebody and they're like, oh, you could court watch. Oh, that's a great idea. I could do that. Or, oh yeah, I can just pay more attention to voting. Or, oh yeah, I want to have an opportunity to, there's a lot of places where you can actually come in with some work and with organizations that go into prisons and just kind of understand it from the inside, you know? So there's just so many different ways to kind of understand to understand it differently. And there's a there's been an interesting phenomena of many like Silicon Valley folks who have quite a bit of resource coming into prisons, coming into San Quentin and being like floored by the conditions, by the people, by like, what the hell have we done here? And there's a reason why these folks that have large foundations then give a lot of money to criminal justice reform because they've seen it themselves firsthand and like, it's internalized in a different way, right? When you're like, oh my God, I'm hearing someone's story. There's a lot of people who've come out that are, are happily willing to share on a more, if they're, if if what moves you is more on a human level, you know, that are more willing to share or would share what their experiences were like, what their story is, what it's been like for them. And I think that that can be really, really moving to uh, someone not seeing it outside of themselves, right? And then thinking about how they want to engage so mass incarceration and punitive justice generally, there's so many ways in which it does not stop harm from happening. It, it's not preventative properly. It doesn't provide healing for the victims of crimes. The whole system is, is not working and it's brought forward by perverse incentives, by building prisons in different districts, bad policies, corrupt politicians. The whole thing is a mess. Now we have a different way of looking at justice, which is restorative justice, of which you are a specialist in. And I myself have partaken in a restorative justice process where harm was done within my community. We took a restorative justice approach to work with harm that was done. So I've had myself some experience of of this. I think the model is beautiful. I think it's so much superior to punitive justice. Like anything, it's not without its challenges. It can be applied in ways that don't actually support Absolutely. the real healing. Mm-hmm. And it's a long process that requires energy and time. Community accountability requires commitment and, and energy. Nonetheless, it is a process that can be utilized a lot more, especially within communities. And so I'd love to switch over from mm-hmm. the mass incarceration in the prison system and how bad that makes me feel and how bad, much worse than how bad it makes me feel, how bad it is, mm-hmm. and talk about restorative justice mm-hmm. and your work in that space and a bit about how our listeners can understand restorative justice as an option within their communities sure. and can understand it just broadly. What is this process and how can it be used to create real healing for people? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing is that because we have nothing but the carceral system as like the massive way to deal with quote unquote crime, what happens is when you hear the words, when people hear the words restorative justice, right, they see it as like an antidote when it's really just one approach 
and it's not a panacea and it's right now pretty small. And particularly because when you're fighting against such a huge sort of systemic institution of prisons, right, we're going to need a lot in order for us to, in order for restorative justice to be successful, there's a lot of systemic work that has to be done. So I just want to say that. But in terms of, you know, what it is and how to apply it is, I would say, like, if we just think about it, like, when sort of a harm happens in our community, whether it's small or medium, large is a little more complicated, that it's seeing it as a responsibility of the community to kind of address the harm, work with the harm, heal the harm, and really tending to both the person that did the harm in terms of why they did it, what they need, also what does it look like to be accountable, and obviously to the victim and the survivor of what happened to them. And so it's almost like something happens and everybody kind of rushes and it's very fast motion, right? We think about when somebody gets hurt, things happen very quickly. Let's call the police and let's take that person away. Now they're in prison. It's just like this very quick this person, this victim has just gone home and is hurt. And it's very disjointed and it's very quick. And it's almost like, what if we just like slow mode that, slow it all down? Something happens. And then you go, oh my God, wait, hold on. What do we need to do, first of all, to keep that person safe, right? The person that was hurt. If I get up, I'm in a room, I walk across the room and I start beating you up. We're not going to be like, let's do restorative justice right now while you're bloody and on the floor, like a rookie mistake or thinking about RJ is as though it can happen at any time. It, it can't. There needs to be a period of time where you're like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, Eamon needs to heal, be pissed and feel hurt and be like really upset about it and really angry. And this, you need to feel safe. You know, you need to feel away from kind of what you just experienced. And this person probably needs a little time out. And not as in like time out for a kid, but just what does it look like to not be in the environment that you were just in where you did that? What that whatever that looks like. There's a beautiful group in Canada. They're in the Niska Nation. And when they described their restorative process, they were talking about how they have restorative justice center in town and it's a town of 2000 and everybody knows when somebody does something wrong everybody knows right and so they have uh, a cabin in the woods and it takes two canoe boat rides to get there and if you've done harm you go to the cabin you go for a week you go for a month you go for three months you get visited by mentors while you're there you deal with your stuff that's a that's an expression of what does it mean in the immediacy after a harm that someone needs to be away from that environment without it necessarily being a prison? Because that's all we can think of, right? And even a cabin in the woods is not necessarily a punitive idea. You're healing. The way she described it is you're healing in nature. You're healing in with your ghosts. You know, you're you're having mentors come, right? So, so just thinking about these very different ways of thinking about how we address harm when it happens and how we take care of the person who was the victim. And if it's appropriate, if and only if it's appropriate, only if the person who's the victim wants it, only if the community wants it, only if the person who did the harm wants it, maybe there's a chance to have a conversation about it, you know, what happened, and have everybody sort of express what they need to express. 
So that's what restorative justice looks like, you know, at its best. Like, that's really what it is. And there's so many different practices that different communities have enacted that can be, you know, there's another woman, she's from uh, the Hetzuk Nation, and she actually, it's the opposite. The first woman was from the Hetzuk Nation. This woman was from the Niska Nation. And she said when there was domestic violence happening in their community, in their house, and she was talking about their, their indigenous community and their different houses, she said, in our house, we all get together, we sit down, and the first persons to speak are the elders. And the elders actually talk about what they've seen, what, what's good about the couple, right? They talk about the love that they saw. They talk about the goodness. Then you have sort of the other members speak. And then after everybody else in the community has spoken, the two people that are in the, the conflict, that are in the violence, speak. So why we've come up with things in our way to do things, who the hell knows, right? But other people have found other ways to sort of say, hey, this violence is happening in here and 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 we're in a community and we can maybe do something about it while really tending to to those involved. So I, you know, I use those examples just because even though they're small communities in like Canada, they give us sort of a almost like a little guidepost of like it's not impossible for us to create our our urban version of the cabin in the woods. It's not impossible for you to create a festival version of a cabin in the woods. What does that look like if everybody knows this and cares and is like, oh, you know, we're going to really take a moment to tend to the situation that's happened in a way where we are keeping everybody's dignity intact, you know, where everybody's humanity is still seen, where we're not just throwing this person away because they did something and we're not we're not ignoring this person that has really been victimized and we're really tending to their needs. So, oh, There's so much in it that I find so inspiring. And just in that last point you were saying about throwing away the perpetrator, well, that, you know, if you're in a community and, and your response is to, not in the case where it's actually like in the justice system, but, but you're sort of exiling a member of the community for some violation, that person goes to another community. That person, there right. isn't really the real accountability that I think happens when you're in a longer process. What I'd like to do is I'd like to share my own experience with restorative justice. And I'm going to share it with you openly now. And then I'm going to double check with the people who are involved that they're comfortable with me talking about it. Um, I'm not going to refer to them in any way that is recognizable, but I just want to make sure. So in the types of communities that I tend to spend time in, in festival communities and in psychedelics and in the sort of worlds that I'm in, what has seemed to be the most common type of violation that is particularly in more of a confusing place of like how to respond to it is around consent. Yeah. Um, it's you know very common that there are consent violations of different gradation where in some cases it would be really absolutely clear that this was a this was a perpetration of some sort of predatory behavior. Maybe it's within a relationship, maybe there's issue, like it can be confusing for people. And I had uh, there was a consent violation within my broader community, and I was aware of restorative justice. And specifically, this the process was called a pod process, which which we participated in. And I was in the pod of the person who had done the harm. And the process was I learned a lot in being in it. It was really exhausting. It was actually a really hard process to be present with, and it was a very long process. And it made me, I'm very glad that we did it. I think that it was the 
absolute best way for the person who had been harmed to experience witnessing and and some degree of of justice when they did not want to escalate this to the justice system it it was the best way but it was also it was a long process and involved a certain kind of like wrestling with the person who had caused the harm and and helping them over a period of time actually understand more clearly and watching that person grow was really positive and but it was also you know it was a real process and i want to share that in part because i've wanted to share that story on this podcast yeah. because it <laughs> was real. it it was it was really impactful for me but it was absolutely worth it it was absolutely time consuming and accountability takes time and yes. community takes time yes and i think that part of what People need to be careful not to be kind of Pollyanna-ish yes. about restorative justice. Oh, here's a model that's so much better than the prison system. So we're just going to go in, and whoever's done the harm is going to be grateful that they're not going to jail, and they're going to get right to it and say what needs to be said, and we'll have this. We'll have this worked out in no time. That wasn't my experience. It was. It was a very positive process. I'm very happy I did it, and it was frustrating at times, and created difficulties in friendships within those. Participating, and and of course, one thing I'll say is that we hired a professional to facilitate, yeah. which that was absolutely yes foundationally <laughs> necessary. Like that, yeah. I would definitely say if you're like in your community looking at this, don't go at it alone. Don't don't read a website and then feel like you you know a professional facilitator is it, just in terms of keeping the process safe is so yeah, important. I so, agree. So I wanted to offer that story and just yeah. see if you have any reflections or things that you might point out about. Yeah, um, the, I mean, some of the processes. Yeah, so much is coming to mind. I completely agree with you. I think one thing, it's an interesting thing, right? In convincing people that like restorative justice or transformative justice or community accountability, because I think there's some technicality here, but I think you're describing like a community accountability process. We can be kind of like, yes, do it, kind of like rosy about it because we want people to stop calling the police or we want people to not u- utilize the criminal legal system in a punitive model. But I absolutely agree with you that it's just, it's a, it's a hard, it's like, don't do this like alone without some instructions, right? Like it's, it's a hard, difficult road and it usually comes with a lot of messiness. So we've started to do something where we basically take everybody's calls. We take anybody's referrals. We've, we were engaging in this last year with, we call it like restorative justice in the community, right? Like anybody, people who've done harm call, survivors call, bystanders call, like organizations have been calling, like just, hey, this has happened, this has happened, this has happened. One thing that we really realize quickly is that, first of all, people don't even know what they want. They're just like, mm. ah, I don't know what to do, right? Like, I don't even know what to do, and I'm looking to not call the, the police, or I don't want to engage the criminal legal system, I don't want to just go about this business as usual. So in the beginning, it's just a point of clarity, helping people figure out what is it that they actually want. Now, a lot of times people who are calling are not the people who are directly involved. You're a friend and you don't know what to do and you're seeing something happen. And so you're like, I need to do something about it. I'm going to call and try to get something, somebody to do some process. And so immediately what we do is we are like, you are amazing and awesome and there's a whole thing we need to do with you. But the first thing we need to do is talk directly to the people that have been involved in the harm to see if this is actually what they want to do. So 
there's so much levels of sort of like, how do you create some sort of sense of pathway for this? And then oftentimes what happens is that most times what happens is there's either a survivor who really wants to sort of go for it and, you know, I'm ready to like engage or there's a person who's done harm who's like, I'm ready to deal with this, but the other side's kind of not ready. Or what happens is like, honestly, it's not the same story on either side. You know what I mean? So there's a lot to figure out in terms of what is the level of harm that happened or that there's harms that have piled up on top of each other in a community. It's like, well, this happened because this person did this and then these other people did this other thing, right? And so I think with each individual situation, it's figuring out what is like the right process for those folks, right? And I would 100% agree with you that the, the thing that is the hardest is accountability. Because first of all, what is going to convince somebody to come forward and say they did something freely, you know, without any punitive consequence, right? People generally don't say to each other, I did something to you that could land me in a jail if they don't have to, because they don't want to land in jail, right? This is so real. So this is where what we need is actually a systemic protection. You know, we need sort of some protection to say to us as a community that if we choose to engage, if people choose to engage in a restorative process, that it remains confidential, that you can't use it. You know, what would that look like? How could that really encourage people to then actually come forward and say, oh, I actually do want to do this. I do want to deal with my shame. I do want to say to this person what I've done, et cetera, et cetera. But just validating like both that it was important, that it was really exhausting and tiring, that it was really hard, that issues of consent in different communities are probably the trickiest. I, I, I Even before you said it, I probably could have said what you were going to say. It was like, oh, yeah, I know where he's going with this, you know? And then what does it mean that we're talking about it? Because we're actually talking about the trickiness. And by tricky, I mean the complexity, right, of being in a community and having gray areas. And there's this way that there's like this kind of party line of like always believe the survivor. And while I think there's a truth to survivors not having been believed and belittled, there are definitely people out there that will manipulate a victim stance to get something else that they want. You know, that has happened. It does happen. That's real. And so there is some grappling with all of those things that we have to do that is not that easy to do. So yeah, just to validate everything you just said. Well, and, and to speak on that last point, part of the work that I do in the world is around masculinity and what it means to be a man. And we started in this place that we like exile the feminine in us to there before be a man. Anything that we consider feminine, like when I was little, I loved to dance and sing and wear pink and purple. And I had to kind of reclaim that and bring mm -hmm. that back. I want to touch on what you said at the end around the trickiness of consent in the context of kind of heteronormative relationships. Absolutely. A friend of mine who I admire very much, who is Swedish, he's like a Swedish philosopher, had a point around consent in the context of the Me Too movement that I thought was very wise and nuanced, which is that he feels that a lot of consent violations, and to what you said earlier, we're talking sort of mild to medium. What he said is that a lot of the experiences in his estimation are not acts that are a lack of empathy or dehumanization between one person to another, but they're sort of like a weird fear of rejection, 
where men put so much self-esteem in their experience of being chosen by women. And so for many men, they don't want to hear a no because there's so much self-esteem wrapped up in our culture around that. And for many women, for myriad reasons, firmly saying no is challenging. Whether there's fear to express that or whether it's not a full no, but it's not a right now. And again, I'm, this is a heteronormative yeah, totally, sort of thing. Totally. But just to talk about the nuance of consent, this moment where no hasn't been said clearly and no has explicitly not wanted to be heard, how do you create clarity and responsibility in the kind of binary system of yeah. like perpetrator that gets punished? But if you get out of this sort of like perpetrator stance and really center the survivor, say, yeah. okay, well, this person experienced harm. So let's start there. Mm-hmm. This person had an experience of harm. And then there may be kind of a long walk from this person experienced harm to someone saying, I see that I have caused harm. Mm-hmm. And what I like about my experience with community accountability and generally restorative justice models is that people will take that long walk together mm-hmm. and will learn yeah. together and educate together and and perhaps in the example that I'm using around consent that was really stemming from this fear of rejection for the person who caused the harm to realize, oh, I was so confused and I had these needs that I was trying to get met in this completely unhealthy way and then I really caused someone harm and then there's a personal transformation that can happen. Absolutely. That, and it's not like, oh, I'm now a perpetrator. Exactly. It's like, oh, I lacked the emotional literacy to do this. In this Bell Hooks quote in the beginning, like my whole conception of being a man growing up was harmful. And to kind of circle that back to your work, I love this idea that a huge part of your work is being with the person who has caused the harm mm-hmm. and helping them understand that harm moving through them, perhaps a childhood pain or trauma that then is expressed or the conditions of their lives that are then expressed. Yeah, I mean, so that people in in your world understand the reason we itself use the words person who's caused harm is so that people don't get stuck in the idea of always being a perpetrator or an offender or whatever, right? It's like that idea of that word means that you are always that action and you are nothing more than a perpetrator. But if you've caused harm, in a situation, you are a person who's caused harm in a situation. It's not who you are in your in your being, and and so, you know, starting from there. And when we do this work with people who've caused harm inside prison, outside prison, wherever, it's always starting from the place of their own story of who they are. Not even like why did you do it. It's like who are you? You know, like what's happening in your life. I mean, the, one of the first things that we do in groups is. We have people draw a gender story. Mm. What are all the moments that you remember, let's say, from zero to 20, where you were influenced by gender? Where somebody told you something that was either great or horrible about what you were doing, and you could now feel that it was related to gender. And to draw it out and use all kinds of imagery and all that stuff, right? And I've been in situations with men before where they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know. I don't know. You know, really, because it's so thick, right? That you're so, masculinity is so toxic that you don't, you can't even recognize how you've been groomed into it. 
And then watching people go, oh, yeah, no, I used to like to listen to this music, but then my dad would yell at me because it was too romantic. Or, oh, I used to like to do this thing. Like just, And it's so cliche, but it's so damn true. You know, you hear people over and over again just be like, oh, yeah, I remember when I, and then this, and then that, and then this, and then that. And then just, just even this idea of, like, we have a bunch of different exercises that's really looking at, like, what is the opposite of, of being a man, you know? in a really deep way, you know, and it's to be this, like, it's to be quote unquote gay. It's to be a woman. It's to be this, it's to be that. It's just, I, I'm not describing it very well, but it's really powerful to think about all the beliefs that are created. There's another really, really beautiful study that somebody did on the 20 most common beliefs about manhood, about masculinity in your childhood and teenage years. And they're things like really simple, like they're just really, really like thousands and thousands of people who've said these are the most common beliefs. And so we have people stand by these statements about whether they felt the most true as a child, as a teenager, as an adult, you know, and then just talk about it and just tell the story of what that was like for you to believe that like, you know, if you had more women than you were, then you were more important. You know what I mean? That you were, you were, you felt more valid, simple shit, but probably some shit that people felt when they were in teenagers, or maybe they still feel as adults. And then like, where does that story come from? And why is it there? And so we start with that. We start with just like all of it. And then it, because it's really about, it's like really changing your belief system. You know, it's really sort of understanding these things to then say, oh, right. Your f Swedish philosopher friend who's come to this idea, which is a beautiful one, right? About what what could be happening for, for men in terms of rejection, right? Could be true and it could be something else, right? That somebody's living out, that it's like, ah! And to have that slow, gradual process with someone who cares about their humanity and their dignity, to be able to uncover what that thing is, it's almost like when you do, you want to share it and you want to be accountable because you're like, oh shit, I figured out why I, I hurt you. I did this. I'm figuring out why I'm hurting myself, you know, and so there's a way that accountability can even become more freeing because you're like, oh, my God, I know myself so much better. And I know that I've been doing this thing to hurt people. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't captivate as much the shame. So, yeah, I think this walking with people on this long journey of what is who are you? We're talking about patriarchy because I think it's really important. I mean, you can do it in terms of or masculinity in terms of anything. Right. But particularly around sexual harm and consent and we're talking about heteronormative you know male female relationships or whatever even non there is some level of that at play and there is oh, some level of that that we have to like uncover the other thing i want to say is in that i think what quote unquote women or whatever what women need is to be so validated that patriarchy has kicked the hell out of us it has been really painful and it continues to be and it is really hard and it is really hard to be a woman it's really hard the the silence the no the getting things stuck in your throat that you can't say is a symptom of of historical trauma of patriarchy and without without the excuse of like but you don't know what it's like to be a man you know or like oh but i used to do this just just to just be like yes yes it sucked yes it continues to suck Tell me about it. Tell me how hard it is. It, and it doesn't negate your personal experiences, right? It's the same thing. It's just like, yeah, I see that. I see you. I see how hard you, you work and how hard you struggle. And I, I kind of wonder, like I have a, a, like a weird theory 
that if oh, I love weird theories, oh, yeah, yeah. give me the My weird theory. My weird theory is that if women actually felt that people understood patriarchy, that men in particular, and I and I know we're talking in a heteronormative frame, right? That some of this confusion around the no and the consent and the did you do this to me would actually get less. Like I have a theory that the bigger issue is about patriarchy and that it's about really, really, really owning that it is our collective problem. And it's not about the individual act like of a romantic or sexual encounter. Sometimes it is. Many, many times it is. But I, I, I just don't think it would be as confusing if we had so, sort of some of this other stuff figured out. That's my theory. It's like probably out there, but it's, it's there. Well, I just love so much that we started with bell hooks and with that particular quote in the context of what we're talking about because it's lent such a, such a flavor of that conversation to our broader conversation around harm and justice. And for me, when I think about men understanding patriarchy, we tend to understand the experiences that we have and can get very defensive in the sort of like not all men energy of defensiveness when we're hearing about experiences that don't make sense in our worldview and we're not able to see the privilege that give us that worldview, which is part of why I find the bell hooks quote around patriarchy such a great access point for men because it it really locates men in solidarity in fighting against patriarchy. And part of that quote that's interesting to me is this idea of that patriarchy is moving the feminine out of the male body, out of the male psyche. Mm -hmm. And when we bring back that exiled feminine, we can make common cause with our sisters in a completely different way. Mm -hmm. And when when you're saying like, there's this desire from the feminine to be seen for what patriarchy has done, I think that when men and boys see the feminine within themselves, then they can see like, oh, it's yes, the patriarchy has done exactly what it has done to you, to this part of me. Mm -hmm. And I've done it to this part of me. And I have been patriarchal in this cutting out these beautiful aspects of myself. And Gender is such an interesting thing to talk about because it's so amorphous and people have different perspectives on it. But I think it's such an integral part of this conversation about harm and healing, whether we're talking about a consent violation or not, because so much of the structures that are creating the conditions of harm being done, even if we're not talking about harm between men and women, are parts of capitalism, patriarchy, Racism, yeah. like what we've inherited from colonial, yeah. you know, ideology. So big stuff. Yeah. Well, and also if you talk about domestic violence and sexual harm, intimate partner violence, it's like you can't not talk about the gendered element to it yeah. or the patriarchal element to it, right? There's just something in that that cannot be avoided. I think there's something also interesting about who can listen to what parts of things. You know what I mm. mean? So. So there's this place where men have to discover the ways parts of themselves have been exiled. Really, really important. And they can be doing that with themselves, with each other, with other women. I think when it's not named that that's what's happening. Like, this is a time we're going to focus on, like, the way men are looking at or you're looking at yourself and the, your, your identity and what has been exiled. 
when it gets confused with a broader conversation around consent or it gets confused with a broader conversation around patriarchy, then other people just start to feel pissed off. Like, you're using that as an excuse. You're minimizing. You're doing this. You're doing that, right? But the reality is that we all need time and space for different kinds of conversations to happen and that we have to be really good and clear with each other about about what conversation are we having and are we having the conversation where I am listening to you as a man and supporting you and your process right now to understand yourself and your my brother and this is my best friend and I care that sh- I care so much about you I I want to be in that conversation great but if we're talking about big harms to women and rape and like all these things and then you start going into like but it's so hard to be a man and these are the things that have happened to me i want to smack you you know quite frankly like i want to be like really dude this is not the right time for that right so so this is the time that we're talking about this other thing and i think what happens so often is that we don't give enough time and space for different kinds of conversations that need to happen so when someone's doing accountability work the person that was harmed isn't sitting there listening to the whole thing right they're just like they're doing their thing and this person's doing their thing so that they can actually really say and feel all the things that they need to feel in with people who love them and support them. And I think that that's true for these different kinds of conversations as well that are tricky in communities, even if it's not about patriarchy or something else. When is it our time to talk separately and when is it our time to talk together? And are we all aware of the type of conversation that's happening so that we can then track all of our feelings as they happen. So, yeah, it's, it's so, so true. And I think that that's why men's circles and men's retreats and yeah. men's work generally, it's our responsibility as men to be like calling in other men and having those conversations so that we're doing the foundational emotional labor with each other rather than these moments where, you know, stealing the spotlight and being like, well, what about me? And that the, the other part of that is like, you know, this idea of centering the survivor as the foundational right. place of this work, which is, you were saying this uh, a little earlier, that there is time for just anger. You know, I think about like with the Me Too movement too, there's like this extraordinary outpouring of grief and rage. Right. And it needs to be given its time. Very much so. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, talking about this kind of gender thing, like having this men's work that's happening and that the harm that's happened to men is not not important or not smaller because this space needs to be made. But in many senses, when we look at like Me Too, patriarchy, where we're at in this moment, the priorities should be, in my opinion, the priority should be that space for the feminine's response. Mm-hmm. And it, I think that maps kind of to what we're talking about in restorative justice is that there needs to be that space for their survivor to have their full range of their experience mm-hmm. without, you know, yeah. And I, th- I think also, I mean, it's sometimes we're more sophisticated and not even that much so in thinking about bi- non-binary in terms of gender. But it's very hard for us to think so non-dualistic and non-binary in terms of thought and like all the things can happen at the same time and they really don't have to compete with each other or cancel each other out. We have incredible capacity to think of many, many different things at the same time and to work on many things at the same time. There should be hundreds of men's circles and there should be many, many Me Too outpourings and there should be all the things, right? And one doesn't mean that the other shouldn't exist. It really shouldn't. You know, doesn't everyone get to heal? Doesn't everyone get to feel joy? Like all the things. And, and I think 
sometimes what happens is we just don't, we don't see the abundance of it, right? We mm. don't see the abundance of healing. Healing is endless and it is incredibly abundant. And I could sit here for two hours with you and you could tell me, and I would want to hear about your life as a boy and a man. And I would be all in to your experience. I don't have to be a man to do that. I just would want to know and I'd want to care and I'd want to support you and hold you. And then you could sit here for two hours and listen to me complain and bitch about patriarchy and how I've experienced it in my life. And you could do all those things and it wouldn't be about you. You'd just be supporting me. So I just feel like, can we get to this really expansive, like non-dual, non-binary, multiple truths way of looking at the world? There's 300% truths out there. Let's own them. And like, all those things can be happening at the same time. It's just that we get confused and compete for our, for sort of like being seen because people aren't seen, they're not heard. So I, th I think if, if there was more of that, there would, be, there would be a lot more of this kind of going on. And I think part of how we create more of that is through how we sit with our own reactivity. You mentioned Viktor Frankl in the beginning, and I love his quote about the space between stimulus and response, mm -hmm. and that that right. is the space in which all growth and human freedom is possible. And when we talk about gender, and we talk about harm, and we talk about patriarchy, there's so many trigger points and so to be willing and able to sit with reactivity in your body and to, to do that practice allows us to create space for others. Right. Because it's that reactivity that so often pulls yes. the microphone where it's like, oh, but you don't know about mics. I'm not one of them, but I had this bad thing happen. That's, that's an embodied yeah. reactivity. And it comes back to what we've been talking about this whole time about this idea of perpetrator. Like, I'm not a perpetrator. I'm not a predator. I'm not no. a I'm not this bad person. And I have to make sure you know this right now because yeah. my body needs to not be condemned. Yeah. And it's a practice. Yeah. To take a breath and be like, whoa, yeah. whoa, what happened? Whoa. Even yeah. even saying that to you, I got triggered. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's also, I mean, when we're talking about big culture change, right? And I think this really applies to your community, is like what does it mean to know that trauma is such a big part of our lives? What does it mean to develop fluency in an emotional landscape where we just understand how many people do I know that don't even notice when they're reacting, right? Because they haven't spent time developing the practice of noticing a self-reflective practice. Oh, I'm upset right now. Why am I upset? What's going on? Am I triggered? Is it okay? Is this happening? We just need to start there, honestly. If there's something anyone can do, it's to become self-reflective, right? It's to start tracking for ourselves how am I feeling in any given moment when something happens so that I can recognize, one, I don't want to react, or two, like I want to take care of myself, you know what I mean? And I think there's a culture shift of building that sort of emotional fluidity and sort of understanding of trauma and understanding of of the critical self-reflection. It's sort of like the foundation, foundation, like the deep foundation to all of this. Like we can't do anything if people aren't doing that. Well, and I think that ties together the entire arc of the conversation. And it brings us to kind of like, well, what can I do? You know, learning to sit with our triggers allows us to have space for others. So take, for example, the prison system. I don't want to look at it because it makes me feel horrible. Right. I don't want to feel that I have benefited from that degree of torture when indeed I have because I'm benefiting from a structure that sits on top of that. And I don't want it to be that way. So 
the the discipline to look at it, to feel that defensiveness of, well, I'm not a bad person, and be like, okay, well, how about it's not about me, and let me witness from it not being about me, and let me witness, okay, this is something that I that is really painful in our entire cultural psyche. Maybe there's a way that I can offer a humble support, but it all comes down to that trigger. Yeah. And then the restorative justice process itself, like it was so great for me to be witness to that process because it triggered me. I had to go through all of my past sure. sexual relationships and be like, where have I caused harm? And like I was saying a moment ago, like even talking about it in this yeah. way with you, my nervous system starts perking up, a little yeah, fight or flight energy. It's, yeah. What if somebody thinks you're bad? What if someone thinks I'm bad? And what, what if would that mean? We did something wrong. Yeah. You know, we all do things wrong all the time, all the time. And just allowing space for that so that we're not eaten alive by shame. That's human. It's being human. I've done I've done things wrong. I t- talked about them many times. I don't want to repeat and rattle things off, but there are times where that stuff held me hostage. If I say this out loud, I'm not this perfect person that everybody thinks I am. You know what I mean? What's the image that I have to shatter to say that I did do that? So, it's, or or it's confusing, or I was confused, or I don't know. You know, it's 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 really interesting. Well, and I just love this way of looking at it as harm was caused to someone. Yeah, someone experienced harm, so that's the starting place. Mm-hmm. And in our criminal justice system, the starting place is like, are you a perpetrator? Are you going to go from a good member of society who gets these opportunities, you can vote, you can get a job, whatever, to now you're a criminal. You are forever that, your whole life has shifted. And that's so scary, and so there's so much defensiveness. But within communities, and when we have good restorative justice, particularly with a professional facilitator who can keep survivors safe in the context of that experience. But if we do have that safety created, you can breathe and be like, whoa, okay, so I hurt you. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. And what can I do to make it right? Mm -hmm. And free us both. Yes. And I think, you know, one thing I've noticed is I mean, this is a, a strange parallel, but like sometimes accountability creates the most freedom for the person itself because you actually know you're not a bad person. It's not even like I think I'm not a bad person or I'm, I'm not buying into this good evil narrative or like I'm now shouldn't be punished. It's like you just know that you're not. And it creates an ability to say something freely. Like I did that to you. You know what I mean? Without owning I am a bad human being. I've seen other people do that. I've experienced that myself when I've been able to say hard things that I've done. And it's taken a lot of time and getting through a lot of shame, but it's created an incredible amount of freedom. So to see accountability as a freeing process can be really liberating, really, really liberating. I was going to say something when you were talking about we don't want to look at the prison system. And like the reaction, I just want to live my life. It just reminded me of, I'm guessing that people in your community are kind of know more about eco-psychology and this idea, Joanna Macy and folks that have done really beautiful work in that field. She has this really great article where she talks about sort of 
the different reactions that we have to like environmental disaster. All the ways we we don't want to deal with it, which is we want to par- let's just party instead because we're going to die or complete denial, you know, or like paralysis. I can't do anything or it's all we're all going to die so I'm going to hide in a hole. And like in when you come back to it, the only way out is through, right? It's a pretty common saying is like to face it, to stand next to it to face the fear of it, to say, oh my God, this is real and it impacts me. And to work with what that looks like. And I think the facing for each person, I really truly believe it creates like a door. When we face something, it's like the doors start to get clear. Like, oh, I'm going to seek other people out that are doing this. Or I'm going to you know, find information out from these organizations that I found and see what I can find in terms of podcasts or webinars or so much information out there, right? We typed in mass incarceration, you could read 20 books about it. So I think that that's true for for this as well in terms of prisons and the way people respond. Well, and that's just a perfect landing place for this beautiful intersection of the communities that I serve with this podcast and with other work and the work that you do. To me, life as a festival is like, can we be more expansive? Can we, can we expand the width of our being? Can we be more connected to each other? Can we be more joyful and open-hearted? And I see we can do that at a festival, so let's bring that into our lives. That's the whole thing, right? And what you're talking about right now is really facing, and by facing turning a wall into a portal, turning a boundary into a horizon. By facing, that is the expanding the width of our being. Yeah. By being aware of mass incarceration and not looking away. By sitting in a restorative justice process as a supporter or to take accountability or to ask for accountability. All of that truly expands our possible ways of being in this world. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just I feel like I could keep talking to you for a really long mm-hmm. time because I'm like really enjoying it. Mm-hmm. But it also feels like a beautiful way to land this conversation. Yeah. Because that's the invitation to not look away. Yeah. To open your heart to the darkest places in yourself and in the world. That's right. And see the alchemization that happens in kind of a Jungian way, that alchemization that happens of like making the unconscious conscious. That's the invitation. Yeah. And I think that what the work that you do is an extraordinary aspect of that. Yeah. And thank you. And I'd say, like, when you're looking at your shadow, are you really looking at your shadow? Are you really, really, really looking at it? Or is it like just a convenient, sort of tropey, cool thing to do is to look at your shadow? Right. And so, what does it take? And then, how do you need to be supported? while looking at your shadow, like back to the process you did. And like, what does it mean to actually start asking questions of yourself? You want your, like, we want to know the way into like ending mass incarceration and dealing with, you know, doing restorative justice. Let's start there. Just start at home. That's all it is. Yeah. But that thing of like, we're doing shadow work. We're looking at our shadows. We need to look at things like mass incarceration to see our shadows. Yeah. The other quote yeah. shows us our shadow this like love and light, like hippie transformation thing right. while people are languishing in absolutely inhumane conditions. And we're like, oh, but I don't know, but that's like not love and light for me. Be mm-hmm. like, well, that's shadow for you. Like yeah. that, you know, well, that's- and, and that you can, you, it doesn't deny you um, the joy of that. You still get to have that joy. And I think that's the non binary. Mm. When you can look at your shadow like a prison 
and have the love and light of of going to a festival and not think you don't deserve it, but mm. really hold with deep awareness and consciousness that other people suffer sometimes more than you do, but it doesn't take away from yours. That's the non-binary. Yes, that's the polyamory of like thought, okay? <laughs> you know, and so people exist in that world of fluidity. We can do it in our minds as well. We can, we absolutely can. All right, Sonia, now that's the mic drop. Okay, That is the mic drop. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on the show. We'll have some links in the show notes. Are there any other resources that you'd like to point our listener to, ways that they can follow your work? We'll put all of it in the show notes as well. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking just if people want to know more, we have resources on our website, himsacollective.net. There's another lifecomesfromit.org. There's this rjoy.org. There's so many. Once you get to one website, you'll get to all the other ones and you'll see all the different people doing trainings and and have all kinds of resources to stuff that's going on. Is there kind of like an entry-level place that you would, someone who's listened to this conversation could then go for either prison reform or, or restorative justice or generally like going a bit deeper? Yeah. Okay, a couple things. I... They don't do it anymore, but the Zare Institute for Restorative Justice used to have a really beautiful webinar series, and they're all logged for five, six years of different restorative practices. That's really a great one. Justice in America, the podcast, is really good for criminal justice I'll, reform. I'll link your episode because I listened to it and quite enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, that's, that's what I would say. Sonia, thank you so much. This has been not only an informational and inspirational conversation, but also feeling a lot of joy and a lot of possibility. And just to finally, for saying goodbye, I love what you said in the very beginning about the community that you have in this work and that really what this is is community work. And I see that shining in all the ways that you represent it. And I just really, I admire you and I'm just really grateful for your time. So happy to talk to you today. It was really, really a beautiful conversation. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Life is a Festival. If you like the show, you can support it by sharing it with your friends, following it on Spotify, or reviewing it on iTunes. If you'd like to get more involved, you can join our Facebook group, Life is a Festival, where we talk about the show and you can suggest new guests. If you really liked the show and maybe want a little bit more, visit my digital tip jar at patreon slash lifeisafestival.com. Whatever you do, I hope today's podcast helped you make your life just a little bit more like a festival. And I'll see you on the dance floor.